we are here back in the 11FS office in London for episode 124 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you JP Morgan to finance blockchain-based inventory system, the UK confirms legal status of crypto assets, and 25,000 Chinese blockchain firms are accused of issuing their own tokens. All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by the returning Lex Sokolin, the global fintech co-head at Consensus. How are you doing, Lex? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Did I say your last name right? You did. It's Sokolin. Oh, see, there was an intonation that I kind of got wrong, but I, I tried to phonetic it, and I didn't quite get that. It's it's all good. I think as long as you arranged the same letters in roughly the same order, we're it, okay. I'm I'm glad to know that I passed that test. <laughs> uh, just before we get onto the news, uh, listeners, 11FS are taking part in the 2020 British Banking Awards again, and we... We need your help. Uh, we need your help to win. So we took home 2019 Consultancy of the Year, and we want to get it again. We can't be just left hanging. Um, it'd be a cliffhanger at that point. Um, and we're also taking part in a new category called Pioneer of the Year. So if you love the work that 11FS does, um, please do head over to bit.ly forward slash 11FS2020 and nominate us for Consultancy of the Year, Pioneer of the Year, uh, and anything else. Um, if there's another category, go for that too. It'd mean the world to us. That's bit.ly forward slash 11FS2020. Thank you. Alrighty, first story this week comes from the block, and this is about JP Morgan finance, uh, to finance a ledger-based inventory system to remove information asymmetry in the automobile industry. They looked for every word with three syllables in that headline, didn't they? Mike Dudas, headline writing man. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, so really what's going on here is um, they want to digitize floor plan financing and bring efficiency to the commercial lending process. Um, apparently, there's an unethical practice of misreporting sales to the bank, and that's been a major challenge um, plaguing the automotive supply chain. And the proposed project plans to register every car into a blockchain registry so that all lenders, dealers, automakers can access important real-time info such as the GPS location of the car, where is it on a forecourt, that kind of good stuff. So what did you think when you saw this, Lex? I like it. I like it. I like the idea. Um, and I think, you know, blockchain's in many ways still on a journey to find its home, mm -hmm. uh, to find its um, where the where the golden road leads and, and everything is great and fixed. And I think... Financial services are also on a journey to find a place where they actually add value, and they're not just these sort of commodity utility layers that are that are uh, having trouble competing with fintechs. And so, bringing together uh, the idea of manufacturing financial product, which in this case is financing, bringing that together with some real-world attributes from you know the Internet of Things and tracking and supply chain, um, and using some of the newer uh, technology that JPM has in order to do that better definitely makes sense. And I think seeing these new kind of asset classes around auto emerging also encouraging. Why do you think they needed a blockchain? <laughs> well, I mean, you start with hashtag blockchain and then, and then you find it. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> I think the, the answer is you need a blockchain when you have an industry business network. And so instead of you know, having a, a spreadsheet or a database, what you have is a system that is up all the time 
whether the spreadsheet or database provider is online. So you have a system that's up all the time. All the uh, different participants can uh, connect to it, pull information from it, update it, uh, read and write it uh, in real time. And then you're most likely enabling different types of institutions to play different roles, right? So you might have uh, underwriters lever off the blockchain data. Um, you might have sort of the IoT provider um, lever off the physical IoT data, and and so it all kind of comes together. It's interesting you point out a number of different uh, technologies there. It's not just hashtag blockchain. It's there's there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Do you think that crossover between those technologies is important? Yeah, I mean, it's venture bingo. Right? This is venture bingo night, I think. Yeah. Uh, am I in the right place? Is you really that, are. That was, that was a line you got right there. Oh, perfect. Um, the, I mean, the answer is if, if we are trying to build some next-gen financial instrument, then it's got to do more than the previous version did. And so pulling real-world data into financial instruments real-time you know, and being able to underwrite based on like a physical footprint uh, of devices is not something that was easy to do before and is something that's much easier to do on a blockchain chassis. And things like you know, QR codes and payments and sort of the new uh, infrastructure for how to tag physical objects, those are all incremental steps that make a thing like this you know, a reasonable entry. But let's say I'm a startup and I identify the same problem, which is a legitimate problem, right? Misreporting sales to the bank. They, uh, the uh, the four courts that these cars are sold on, the dealers that sell them, they're independent dealers and they have a franchise relationship with Ford or GM or whoever else. So you know, it's, they're all small businesses or relatively small businesses. So they, you know, there's a risk of fraud. There's a risk of internal fraud. There's there's all kinds of stuff that that can go wrong there. But like, why wouldn't I just go build the startup that does that on um, a, a NoSQL database or something else? Like, is this really about a distribution challenge, or is there something inherent to that point you made about uh, that uh, network effect at an industry level that becomes different if I'm if I'm using this different technology? It's really hard for a startup to do um, to move an industry. You know, and to strong to crowbar an industry into adopting a standard or a broad solution like this, and so I think you need a firm the size and scale of a J.P. Morgan or uh, uh, name any other ones you like. You know, from from City to Bank of America to Goldman uh, to actually get something like this up and running, and then at the same time, you need that firm to be in the business of putting capital to work and having a balance sheet that matters. So if you have a small balance sheet, you don't have a ton of impact on you know, thousands of these dealers or hundreds of these dealers. Um, so I, I think, um, unfortunately, some of these industry transformational projects are somewhat locked out for small, uh, nimble firms. It's interesting that uh, you tend to see blockchain come into its own when you uh, kind of connect different types and sizes of business together. Is, is that what you're saying in that, that like you've got lots of small forecourts, you've got banks, you've got uh, different uh, you know, kind of uh, big automakers, you've potentially got insurers on the back end, you've got different data providers, yeah. and they're not in one industry vertical. They're not in the auto industry. They're not in the finance industry. So there isn't an obvious place for them to convene. You could almost call it some sort of like a, like a chain, like a supply chain yeah. on the on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. I, just, oh my I just God. had to do it. I just oh had to do God. it. I think it's I think it's bingo night. So right. um, 
that but physically we, hurt me. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I'm. I'm trying to. I'm trying to see what what I can say to uh, to make the most number of dad jokes. Yeah, but I really, I really you, think you're, you're, I'm considered the pun fu master until you brought ooh, this along. <laughs> ooh, that's the, okay. The entire okay. production team just shook their head at me. <laughs> by the way, um, but yeah, you're right. It's. Um, Blockchain doesn't add a ton of value unless you have a complicated multi-actor um, interaction, right? And so it's not just uh, a bunch of owners or a bunch of finance companies or a bunch of uh, Tesla Cybertrucks. Uh, it's really how all these things come together. And you know, often you need to start thinking about how is this product regulated? Who's going to do oversight? How how is the flow of funds tracked? Um, uh, and in this particular case, it's like, how do you build identity into the physical car? And so I think by by the nature of it, you need a much more uh, broad and complicated solution. And, and we're seeing in the auto industry uh, a real change. Well, not a real change, but a, the potential for a change in that direct consumer model. Um, you, you mentioned the Cybertruck, but one of the things Tesla do uh, is to you know, do more of direct sales and not have the, that forecourt sort of dealer network. Uh, is is this sort of um, another way for people to be like a, a wannabe Tesla? Because I'm worried if this is like, um, is it almost uh, a faster horse? You know, like this is the old distribution model of the auto industry versus the new distribution model. That's uh, that's a great that's a great frame. Um, you know, and, and I just sort of uh, my first reaction is to think about the Tesla smart car. Um, and that you know they're not building a car; they're building a computer. That's also that happens to provide transportation. Mm -hmm. uh, and recently, maybe a couple of months ago, Tesla announced that um, in California, at least, they're offering Tesla's underwriting the insurance on the Tesla car. You know, and it's like, why? Well, it generates; it has its own digital twin. It has its own avatar. It generates all the data about driving and and you know its behavior, and therefore it has perfect information about the insurance policy, which means that it's gonna it's gonna be a, a more accurately priced insurance policy than what you would get out from a third party, and therefore it's cheapest. And so you can you can sort of like take that logic to the extreme and say all these smart cars that are. Um, that are digital first, that maybe sit on a private blockchain and have identity and you know have title and all these things. Um, that the device itself could be both the transportation mode and then have a whole set of financial features and be able to interact financially with its environment. And that's a cool science fiction story. Um, <laughs> but in reality, you know, like a lot of people drive the Ford pickups, and yeah. so maybe put a sticker on them in the meantime. I think there's that um, working with reality versus working with 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 the, with the dream. And hey, who knows if you're building a Cybertruck that would probably make more sense on Mars than um, on Earth? Then then there's something to that to that piece. Um, I'm going to move us to the next story because this one could run and run, and I'm sure we'll come back to it. Um, the, the next story comes from, well, it actually comes from Linklaters directly, but uh, there was a couple of um, publications that covered this one. And this was about uh, the UK confirming the legal status of crypto assets and smart contracts. Um, so the UK, that's snappily titled uh, UK Jurisdiction Task Force, or UKJT. Uh, has issued a legal statement. Um, under English law, crypto assets are now capable of being owned and smart contracts can be or part of legal binding contracts. Interesting. What were your thoughts? So 
I, I really um, uh, like this development. And, uh, you know, the one of the pieces of substance that stuck with me was that it's not, quote unquote, owning the keys to some, to, to you know, your, um, your wallet. And it's not necessarily, you know, having something printed out in a safe. And it's not necessarily like delegating it to a software provider. And it's not the Bitcoin or the Ether on the chain. Ownership but rather, is this other thing. Yeah. Well, ownership is an arrangement of these various circumstances and is also informed by the the design or the structure of the chain itself. You know, so a, th- a way you might own a thing in one way on the Bitcoin blockchain, you might own a thing another way on a competing one. And it's this kind of special arrangement of these attributes that I'm sure a court would interpret. And that is what constitutes ownership. And that is Uh, I think that's a much smarter approach than saying, you know, custody of a brick of gold is the same as the custody of a brick of Bitcoin. Mm, Interesting perspective because a lot of people have been wrestling with, you know, what does uh, key management and custody look like for crypto assets and what what implies ownership. Um, English law has historically been quite flexible um, and, you know, amenable to technology change. So uh, this is probably the most complete thing I've seen from any jurisdiction in terms of the... I know um, France did look at smart contracts, but I don't know if they went as, as deep as this in terms of what it meant for ownership. And that's kind of still very much an emerging debate. Uh, where do you think this leaves people who are trying to build things like tokenized real world assets or think about crypto custody or think about you know the next generation of market structure? What does this give me that I didn't have before? Is it that increased certainty or is it something else? That's a super hard question. So you know, I think in many ways, the idea of custody in the traditional sense and Owning a digital asset are orthogonal. You know, you, you you don't need a place to put the digital asset. It's there. You need access to it. So we've gotten to this place where custody is really about keys, and uh, the custody sale is very much about features. And, and that's an interesting point because having the key to the car doesn't mean I own the car. It means I can access the car, and yeah. those are two different things. And actually, the crypto industry had moved more and more towards having the key implied ownership or was ownership. And indeed, at the beginning of Bitcoin, there was the whole not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Um, so this is a this is a different position to that. It is a different position to that. And I think, you know, maybe if you're, is crypto head a term? Mm-hmm. I don't think it is, but let's make it a term. Uh, crypto maximalist. Crypto maximalist. Um, what you, you know, you probably, um, this is passe now, but the whole code is law debate is, is very much, maybe this helps. So law and the law in general is, is not some terrible thing sort of articulated against us by sovereign power. Rather, it is the the fault line between human conflict. So the only thing that really hit the courts are things where people really disagree in weird ways. And Mm -hmm. so what goes through sort of the the common law history are all of these exceptions that people try to apply their best judgment to. And then there there is a kind of cumulative gathering of all that history tested against legislation and tested against top-down law. And it gives you human color about how societies really want to decide these things. And so, if anything, I just think it's a really positive step towards saying there 
there should be and there can be a combination of of human judgment and interpretation that tilts this technology to actually working in favor of human interest. I think the the law nerds out there would, would really enjoy this reading. Um, I know Preston Byrne had a look at it and and uh, atypically for him, he, he didn't immediately rip it apart and have a million problems with it. And I think there's something to be said about the maturity of that uh, blockchain law conversation, the DLT, the, the crypto asset law conversation that, as you say, three or four years ago was um, quite binary in that it was either it will look more like the law does now or it will look a lot more like um, you know, the, the, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. And it feels like we're, we're sort of progressing away from that a little bit and into a place where um, if ownership is is this, this more ethereal thing, the technology is kind of agnostic. We don't care what tech it uses, and we'll solve that problem differently on a, on a case-by-case basis. So it's uh, interesting developments for sure. Alrighty, uh, time for a quick chill. Um, i got to chill it like it's hot. Um, this episode is brought to you by R3. Um, Corda, uh, developed by R3, is known for its enterprise-grade privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability ability. Um, and because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries ability, um, in particular financial services ability, um, it can be used by firms of any type, uh, size, or industry ability. Uh, with Corda, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain, and a free trial of Corda Enterprise is now available at r3.com. Head over to check it out and shout out to Top McDonald, friend of the show. Alrighty, on with the news. Next story comes from Coindesk, and apparently 25,000 blockchain firms in China tried to issue cryptos as senior official claims. And uh, led by the Chinese central bank, five uh, financial and technology authorities jointly published the Blue Book of Blockchain on Thursday, outlining illegal and fraudulent schemes across the blockchain industry. And approximately 89% of blockchain firms in China might have tried to issue their own, create and issue their own tokens. And the most common crypto issuance process, the ICO, has been deemed illegal by the Chinese government after its 2017 crackdown. Um, but it still allows crypto mining operations and the possession of crypto assets in the country. So as you look at this, Lex, what do you think the future of crypto is in, in China? It seems to be, for here in the West, we it feels very mixed messages and signals. But but is that how you view it, or do you think there's something else going on? This is a, a really complex, multi-layered uh, sort of cake of a, of a problem. Uh, and, you know, you can touch a couple of pieces of it and get a feeling for what's going on but really there's a whole bunch of um, a whole bunch of vectors so let's start with a just another symptom for what's going on in China um, so uh, digital lending exploded in the US in the mid 2000s you know uh, lending club um, on deck exactly. yeah then about uh, five or six years later it came to the UK I think France and Germany are still trying to understand what digital lending is. I think Zopa were the first in the world, actually, in 2004. That's my understanding. Uh, I'll, um, <laughs> I, I shall allow it. Uh, uh, it's fine. It's okay. It's fine. I, it was just a little... Nobody's uh, ever lent anything before 2004. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you mean peer-to-peer lending, or do you mean um, sort of digital lending? Because I'm pretty sure there's digital lending in, in the broadest sense of you could go apply for a loan and manage it through your online banking or something like that. For sure, yeah. So the, the peer-to-peer movement yeah. um, that... I'd say the, f- the first asset class to really mm-hmm. attempt to be digitized. Um, and China joined that 
that theme uh, not that long ago. I think it was maybe five or six years ago. Uh, and in large part is because the, the sort of Chinese uh, financial services industry is split between very large state-owned banks that are there to finance primarily very large state-owned enterprises um, and then the rest of the country. So no small business financing, no access to payment system, you know, and so Ant Financial uh, famously solved that through um, through um, uh, WeChat and Tencent and all all the stuff around QR codes, and so in that span of time, peer to peer lending in China went from no companies to I think at the latest count somewhere around eight thousand different versions of Lending Club, mm-hmm. and. Today, of those 8,000 different versions of Lending Club, something like 6,500 have been frauds and scams. Mm-hmm. And so um, where people just take money and, and walk away right, uh, for, for the, from the loans. And so the Chinese government had had to crack down on that um, activity, which was very grounds up and sort of low quality. And as a result, they, they're kind of missing the core peer-to-peer lending bit. And so when you look at ICOs, it's much of the same. So it's not – I wouldn't say it's like, hey, these 25,000 ICO projects are bad because crypto and, and tokens and all that. It's just – to me, it's the exact same kind of opportunism on the ground where um, you have swaths of people that are trying to be uh, essentially hustlers. And I think the the government has no choice but to uh, you know f- find a way to – uh, clean out, I would say, this this industry, and it's it happens in all of these different sectors. I don't think it's just crypto. Is there a risk we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, though? Is there an overcorrection that, that might happen? So I think two thoughts on that. Um, the first is that for China, you know, so the last, I'm, I'm going to go weird, right? So <laughs> the last century, um, China has seen uh, the U.S. dominate in terms of media and Hollywood, you know, so soft power, and certainly hard power, whether it's nuclear or uh, occupational. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then also in terms of uh, the dollar as the reserve currency, right? So between Hollywood and the dollar, that's massive soft power. Uh, And so if if you're strategically thinking about regulation and frontier technologies um, as the Chinese today, what you do is you put hundreds of billions of dollars into uh, research and commercialization and sort of just wild frontier pushing against blockchain and artificial intelligence because you understand that is where the puck is going for tech infrastructure. And so, you know, if you look at Africa, um, the best facial recognition software for um, uh, for black people is Chinese because they are in Africa collecting data sets. Uh, some of the worst facial recognition software for black people is in the U.S., whereas a 30% error rate, if you're white, the error rate's 5%. You know, so um, the Chinese presence is much more global in this sense, and it's being, uh, I wouldn't say waged, but it's being aggressively pushed forward. And so I don't think that there's a chance that blockchain will get thrown out because it's such a national priority. Uh, But certainly, let's call it the decentralized web doesn't have uh, a very high chance of success in that that economy, I think. Mm. Interesting to watch this one as it continues to develop. I think uh, as it does so, um, there's, we've seen a lot of the scams, but we've also started to see, at least in, in my experience, I don't know if you've seen the same thing, people look at uh, the concept of tokenization for real-world assets, and that's become a, a bit of a trend. Is there a future for that, A, within a Chinese context, and B, B more broadly, um, or would things like this be unhelpful to, to that vision? So it's... Um 
I do think we've swung maybe a little bit too far in the direction away from what tokens could potentially be used for. You know, so just touch on what used to be termed utility tokens and what now, you know, today a lot of decentralized finance is around margin lending and sort of these trading speculative use cases. But there's still a whole lot of stuff that regular tokens could be used for without being securities. So um, at Consensus Codify, we have a project called Activate, and it's for token launches. And one of the things that uh, the team has put together is this idea of a proof of use. You know, so you can't sell a token or buy a token unless you prove that you've actually used the token in a network. So you can think of that being applied to like loyalty points or going back to our, uh, you know, to our cars being counted on the dealer floor, right? Like without a token actually being consumed or used or staked or somehow employed in the network, you know, it shouldn't exist. But then when you go to the regulated side, I think the answer is a lot easier. Uh, you don't really have to imagine something different. You can just point to a whole bunch of alternative finance asset classes that are illiquid, poorly constructed, um, have poor business process. Um, and so things like, I'm sure you've heard this before, but everything from real estate to muni bonds to syndicated loans to structured product, all of those are asset classes that we see uh, in pretty active development. Uh, and in active development by large organizations that are looking at their business internally. And so it, it feels like there's more activity and not less for that kind of thing. And if there's more activity and not less, are they... Uh, so Colin Platt always says that uh, liquidity is a, is a weird beast. The fact that you are going into you know, what is currently in a liquid market and you've got a new technology doesn't mean you're going to create liquidity. Uh, what Have people really solved some of the hard challenges there in your experience around how do I bring these tokens to market and how do I make that comply with my existing um, platforms or, and or regulations and obligations? So I too am hungry for that answer. Um, I think there, the, the, people are nipping at the edges of this problem. And so, do you remember Real Player? Yeah. Yeah. How, that's how cool. an old school reference. It's, uh, it's great, right? Yeah, that's, that's like QuickTime, um, but before, well, I guess it's similar to QuickTime or VLC Player or a whole bunch of those sort of things. Yeah. yeah. Windows Media Player. I mean, we can go to HyperCard, we can, wherever yeah. you like, Clarisworks, mm -hmm. you know. I've used a computer, mm -hmm. um, you know. So, um, so Real Player was uh, had the the concept that all uh, all video will be on the internet, you know. And and they were a video player that was always streaming, trying to stream this, and they were known for a terrible experience, full of ads, always buffering. Um, and the reason is that they did this in two thousand three, two thousand four. So they were a desktop software. There was no monetization. There was no market. And there was no internet, really, in terms of bandwidth. Today, Instagram and YouTube have a very similar thesis, right? But they work. Uh, the rails are there. Infrastructure is there. Bandwidth is there. People can render video in their browsers. If you remember, Flash wouldn't let you do that uh, very well. And so I think blockchain today is in the exact same space, like RealPlayer, where things are kind of buffering. And they're being eaten. The problems are being solved at the edges, right? So first, you need to put the, the, the telecom rails on the ground. So to me, that's kind of equivalent to the regulatory work that a whole bunch of companies are doing. Uh, you can think about uh, the companies that went through the FCA sandbox that are focused on issuance of, of crowdfunding. 
Um, there are other companies focused on capital markets. And uh, in the US, there is actually a fairly large field of companies focused on SDOs. And so I think those are eating at the regulations and paving the way. And then the second problem that you're describing is uh, liquidity. So liquidity is, uh, is, like you say, is are there people who will actually buy and sell this thing? And then sometimes liquidity is terrible. So for example, in the crash of Lehman, I used to work at Lehman, mark-to-market, meaning having liquidity on your assets and naming a price for your illiquid assets was like taking a bullet to the head because if it's illiquid, it's worth $100, and if it's liquid, it's worth $0.02 cents on, the, on the $100. And so I think there's a whole Pandora's box about sequencing that journey, um, but just because it's a tough journey doesn't mean we shouldn't do the work. Hmm. Interesting reflection, and I think timing the market is always really, really hard. So you mentioned RealPlayer. The one I think about is YouTube that founded in 2006 uh, versus RealPlayer that's maybe a decade earlier but still sort of lingering around in the late 90s. So there's there's a real timing question there that's going to be going to be key for people to, to follow up on. A I, real player timing question. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nicely done. Uh, next story comes from The Block, and uh, this is with a trust license. Fidelity eyes a new set of client opportunities and an expansion of its crypto trading platform. Uh, Fidelity's crypto unit is the latest custodian to secure a license from the New York State to operate a trust. Um, The firm will continue to build on its execution offering um, and lean in on its brand name uh, to attract more clients. Uh, It's a move that um, Tom Jessup, who leads um, the digital asset um, services at Fidelity, says will expand the pool of potential clients, pulling it head-to-head with other custody businesses already operating in New York, including Coinbase Custody and Backed. They say their differentiator is it's a custody solution paired with a trade execution platform, which allows its clients to buy and sell Bitcoin across a number of liquidity sources, which feels like the market's maturing a little bit, uh, especially around Bitcoin in the top five um, crypto assets for that low level of institution. Again, same question as usual. What did you think when you saw this? So a lot of um, a lot of institutions that um, consensus talks to, uh, I would say, are that are focused on the asset class, not on the operating story, but on the you know how do we enable Bitcoin mm-hmm. or Ether or are there things other than that? I'm not I'm not sure. But, mm-hmm. um, they are trying to solve. Um, they're still trying to solve the really basic infrastructure. So it's boring to talk about because we've heard it a thousand times. But they're still trying to solve. Uh, custody in the right in the right way to solve the matching engine and get best execution in the right way uh, to design a brokerage interface and just allow somebody to hold Bitcoin in the same sort of general vicinity as they would Apple stock, which you know that means portfolio management systems and reporting and tax reporting, and none of that stuff is built out. So it's it's not a surprise, and I think what we're going to see multiple permutations of of this type of progress. Um, you know, the other reflection is, um, I don't know if you saw, but TD uh, and Schwab uh, just um, seem to have a shotgun marriage mm-hmm. uh, recently. And so uh, if TD and Schwab is allowed to consolidate together uh, $26 billion in stock from Schwab to buy TD, I think Fidelity is in, in an interesting place uh, because they, they will become significantly smaller relative to, to Schwab. And so this, this would be kind of a Hail Mary bet for them. And I think it, I would love to see Fidelity um, think in a more aggressive way about how to accelerate 
their crypto offering. And so, you know, maybe they should go out and buy Coinbase or maybe Coinbase should go out and buy Fidelity. Ooh, I, yeah, that would be interesting. Does, does A16Z have the, the cash for that? And uh, of course, Fidelity is privately held. Um, there's also rumors of uh, Goldman sniffing around E-Trade. And so that market could consolidate uh, quite interestingly. Uh, and this reminded me of uh, the, the play we've seen with both Robinhood, Revolut, and probably most successfully with Square Cash, which, albeit on the consumer side, which is come for the Bitcoin, stay for the real product. And I wonder if there's an element, you know, does that translate into um, the the kind of the the lower end of the institutional space, which is come for the crypto, stay for everything else we do? Is that the play here or is there something different going on? So I think the there's a macro story and it's it's hard to tell exactly where the macro story stops and where mm-hmm. irrational venture funding starts. Um, <laughs> but I do think there's a macro story that is, that uh, is probably well known to your listeners, which is regardless of what product in the fintech vertical you're talking about, whether it's lending or payments or investments or in this case, crypto and the alternatives around that, what you the playbook is you build out that one product um, until you have a couple of million users. Then you realize, I'm burning 50 million a year and I don't make any money, so let's cross-sell. Um, then you see a whole bunch of API providers for all the other products, and um, you build out the full portfolio. So you're like Citigroup from the 80s just in the phone, <laughs> um, and you're hoping that you know, your conversions are good enough to, to justify the full economics. Yeah, and that's been the age-old model is, is like you kind of, you see people build up the, the independent business lines and then try and figure out how to put them all together later and try and do the cross-selling piece. It's um, it's going to be interesting to watch, see if these guys can, can pull it off and uh, are they real player or are they YouTube? It's uh, it's interesting timing for show. Okay, so stories we didn't have time to cover this week, Lex, include one from Finextra, and this is about AAX, uh, Digital Assets Exchange, going live on the London Stock Exchange Millennium platform. So interesting that uh, incumbent vendors are selling into the new space. There's a new client base out there for them. Uh, Story from the block, NASDAQ-powered DX exchange is going through bankruptcy proceedings just weeks after shutting down. Uh, Story from Cointelegraph, Bitcoin drops below $7,000. Don't say it. That's not true. It can't be true. Yeah, apparently so. As China vows to dispose of local exchanges, um, that's uh, air quotes around dispose of, and see what that means. Uh, Financial News London, Nomura Jersey wins license for crypto custody business. That was pretty significant, I thought. Um, to, again, to the what we were talking about, about fidelity and, and the increasing sort of uh, view of the big players. Even the LSE Millennium platform, uh, big players are looking, do they acquire, do they buy, do they partner, do they build? And the last story we didn't have time to cover is Forbes, when final isn't actually final, uh, cracking blockchain's consensus conundrum by Richard Gentle Brown, of course, uh, CTO over at R3. Uh, it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Twitter of the Week comes from the one and only Nathaniel Whitmore, and his handle is NLW. If you're not following him on Twitter, you should be. His tweet reads, um, Me, get paid by client in BTC last night. Rejoices at ease and speed. Bitcoin, angry face, down. Me, you cruel, fickle mistress, you. Um, and then there's a reply um, which says, at back, you need to solve this. Uh, what were your thoughts when you saw this? Uh, uh, feature... Uh, feature, not a bug, right? Bitcoin's volatility mm-hmm. is a feature, not a bug. And I think 
it just it just goes back to uh, what do we want Bitcoin to be? Do we want it to be the unit of account, uh, or do we want stable coins to be the unit of account? Mm. And and uh, how good is it really being a means of exchange, store of value, unit of account, or is it pick two of those? Uh, kind of the age-old question. Alrighty, that wraps up this week's show. Just to remind you, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services and really rethink the very fabric of financial services. So um, please do get in touch. Um, Lex, where can people find out more about you? Check out two places, uh, lexoakland.com uh, for, for weekly writing on some of these futurist themes that we talked about. Um, and then uh, Consensus Codify is at codify.consensus.net, and that is the operating system for commerce and finance on blockchain. So if you're thinking about digital assets or uh, decentralized finance, um, there's a whole bunch of stuff for you out there that's delicious and fun. Delicious and fun. Alrighty, You can find me at SYTaylor or email me directly, simon at 11fs.com. Uh, once again, a big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS. Producers Laura, Petrit, Hannah, Olivia, and of course, Alex, our superstar editor. Also, Michael, who took the photos. Um, thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now. <laughs>